0: So good evening, and welcome back to our third week of our six-week series. And um, so a little bit of an overview or review is that uh, this is an introduction to the practice of mindfulness. And the practice of mindfulness is a very simple practice of using your awareness or your attention in order to uh, do two, two primary things. One is to take a closer look at the life that you're li- uh, living. And um, not the life that you imagine you're going to live in the future, not the life you hoped you had lived in the past, but uh, the uh, closer look at the life that you're living, which is always here. And it's in, the, in your lived experience of here and now. So take a closer look. And uh, Buddhists love different different language for that closer look. One of them is the idea of intimacy. And some Buddhists love the idea that mindfulness has to do with kind of intimacy with life, so with all different aspects of life, to really connect with it in a deep way, see it clearly for what it is. And uh, a lot of the wisdom that Buddhism puts a lot of value on comes not because you read a book that tells you some kind of useful knowledge, but comes from uh, seeing our lived experience, seeing life in some deeper way than usually accessible. Uh, in uh, everyday life. So it isn't some kind of strange capacity to see deeply, just taking the capacity of attention, of looking or being aware, and heightening it, or looking more carefully, or, or kind of using it to investigate, to understand. So that's one function. The other primary function is that uh, there's something about the nature of attention or awareness uh, in its simplicity, in its utmost simplicity, Uh, That uh, is very liberating. It's very freeing. It's very refreshing. And um, because uh, you know, usually when people pay attention to things, uh, right connected to that. Sometimes even before we pay attention to things, we pay attention. Even before we pay attention to something, we're already predisposed in some kind of way. And uh, and as soon as we pay notice something, uh, there's all kinds of ways in which we relate or react to what we're seeing. And so some of those reactions in, uh, are quite you know, fine. Some of them are problematic and cause us a, a fair degree of suffering. And, um, but there's always a kind of complication. It's kind of like you have a, um, a, a window and a clear window is very simple. You can see right through it, you see what's on the other side. But uh, often what happens is the window is you know, smudged over or there's dust on it or something so you can't see all the way through. So the same thing with this capacity to see clearly. In its simplicity, it's like having a clear window. And um, but no, normally our, our reactions, our judgments, our interpretations, our desires, our fears, um, our predispositions, our interpretations, our past history, our future expectations, they all uh, very quickly uh, muddle the water, mud- muddy the, the, the or d- dirty the window. And so that simple awareness doesn't, is not there by itself. And so, on one hand, what we're trying to do is see more deeply. On the other hand, that seeing more deeply is also helping us to free our awareness, free our attention. So attention can be there in this kind of pristine simplicity. And uh, perhaps the expression simplicity will seem to you as being um, simplistic. You know, why would you want something simple? You could have something sophisticated and wonderful. But um, the, uh, you know, it's... it's, um, you know, when, um, when there's no smog in the Bay Area, you can just look across the bay in that clear, clean air. That's pretty simple. And it's priceless. Uh, there's something very uh, wonderful about it. So to have a heart that's liberated or free, or an awareness or a presence which is liberated and free, is one of, the, one of the goals for Buddhist practice. And the marvelous thing is that, um, that this freedom is, not, is very closely connected to the capacity to pay attention. So, rather than thinking of liberation or freedom as some kind of abstract thing that's far into the future, um, there's something about the nature of uh, simplicity of awareness, which partakes to the, the whole wonderful experience of liberation that's connected to it. So, we do this mindfulness practice to develop our awareness, to heighten our awareness, to cultivate and develop and make it make so it's a bigger resource, a strength, a skill that's we carry with us in our life. And one function is it helps us see more deeply. And as we see more deeply, we can see the forces that drive us, that motivate us, that push us around, the forces that we react to. And we can begin um, uh, making wiser choices in relationship to that so that uh, the ways in which we contribute to our suffering, our pain, a variety of things, we can start uh, making different choices. We can start lessening up on that. So seeing more deeply. And then the other is uh, to discover something about the freedom that's found in paying attention itself. So that's, uh, so as we do this, mindfulness practice, by the way, uh, as, as, I, as I teach it, as it's often taught, uh, we do it systematically. And it doesn't have to be taught this way. And when I was taught mindfulness practice in Burma, in the monasteries in Burma, um, I showed up in the monastery and I was given a cassette tape and a cassette recorder, a player, and they just you know plugged us in, it was a half an hour. And in half an hour, they gave the full instructions and then I was sent to my room to practice for the next eight months. <laughs> and uh, so you got, you know, you kind of, thr- the full transmission in half an hour. So I certainly do that, but what we find is that, um, is that it actually works better for most people to kind of, uh, get it, kind of work, kind of, it's so, you know, human life is relatively complicated, so to get some sense of how to work with certain domains, certain areas of life, and build on that foundation to get uh, familiar with more and more. And so at the end of six weeks, then you have a sense of how, what the full instructions are uh, because you've built slowly up to it. So we started with uh, breath as the foundation. And then last week we talked about um, the body, Our physical embodied experience is a very important part of the mindfulness practice and certainly of Buddhist spirituality. And then um, uh, tonight's subject is emotions. And um, emotions are a great topic. Emotions are connected to some of the most sublime, precious, wonderful things that humans experience, and also some of the most awful things connected to human experience. So there's a wide range that emotions, you know, are about. And uh, but uh, whether it's the positive or the negative, emotions are a very important part of human life. And and given that, it's a very important to get a, get a sense of how to bring mindfulness to our emotional life. So we can see it more clearly and so we can discover freedom in relationship to them or so we can give freedom to them. And the idea of freedom, you know, both if you could become free, you're also giving freedom to something else. It sounds like it's like a two way thing. Or it's two sides of the same coin. So there's a certain kind of freedom that you, you can find which will allow your emotional life to flow through you much more freely than it is. And uh, and that's a really beautiful part of the practice when the emotions um, have you know have this freedom, and part of that uh, in Buddhist practice is or mindfulness practice is um, especially when we meditate. Meditation is a wonderful laboratory, a wonderful uh, uh, kind of arena, because it's a place to have very deep trust of our emotional life, and rather than thinking that something should be denied or repressed or judged. Or held onto, there's a very deep trust that what's moved through, what moves through us in an emotional way is somehow it's, 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 it's trustable. Maybe not in and of itself, but it's trustable to let it move through us, to let it come and be there and to move through us. And one of the reasons why it's trustable is that all, uh, uh, virtually, you know, most emotions that people have, um, maybe all emotions. Uh, are away, are, say, this, say it this way: many emotions people have are a form of communication. And uh, something's being communicated. So if you're really angry, something's being communicated. And so if you sh- uh, shut it out or push it away or deny it, then you're not availing yourself of what's being communicated. You're not listening to so what needs to be learned or seen there. It doesn't mean you act on the anger, but uh, you kind of have enough respect for it and trust in the process. You're willing to open to it to see more deeply. And what happens as you get a sense of how to do this in mindfulness, how to open and be present for emotions. There's a transformation of emotions. There's an evolving, a resolution, a, uh, a movement of emotions that, um, that uh, is very clarifying, very helpful, and also ultimately can be very deepening. Where we kind of not just see the surface emotions which involve our life, but we start seeing some of the depth of our emotional life, and uh, often it's not available so easily when we go go about just kind of living our no- normal life. So tonight's subject is emotions, and um, and as I, I start this evening, I, I know that there are people who have uh, virtually have um, very have, have, people have very strong opinions about emotions in our society, and people who are have manifestos, you know, and people who are almost almost willing to fight. Uh, about their opinions of what should happen with their emotions. They should celebrate their emotions. They should act on every emotion. They should uh, uh, not express any emotion. It's important to be kind of, you know, the emotions are frightening and scary. And let's not show them to anyone, let alone to ourselves. There's a wide range of very strong attitudes people have to emotions in our society. And so probably all of you already have uh, consciously or unconsciously a relationship to what we might call our emotional life. And it's very helpful in this process of mindfulness to reflect a little bit about what that relationship might be. And this is something you can do: go for a walk with a friend, journal, think about it somehow. But if you can kind of get some, kind of explore a little bit what your relationship is to your emotional life, then uh, that relationship is not so is less likely to hang up the process of mindfulness. Because as you pay attention to emotions, your relationship you have to emotions might interfere with the, the simplicity of just noticing it. Just noticing, oh, this is how it is. Right now, I'm angry. Let's pay attention to this. Right now, I'm happy. let just be very simply aware of that. As opposed to, great, I'm happy and I'm gonna celebrate it and dance in the streets. And, or, I'm angry and I'm gonna go on, oh, you know, really, that, you know, I really am justified in my anger. And I'm gonna let it rip. You know, or something, you know, we really can't get into it. But, you know, they to be really simple with it. So part of mindfulness practice, then, is learning to bring a wise attention to our emotional life. What's important, though, is uh, in talking about this, is Buddhism doesn't have, doesn't try to, for the most part, doesn't, um, or for, at least let's say it this way, in mindfulness practice, we don't give special value to our emotions different than the value we give to our physical experience, or our mental experience, our thoughts, or our breath. It's kind of, for the purposes of mindfulness and awareness, it's all equal. So, again, some people have these very strong ideas that the emotions are what they're about. And that's where they're going to, everything's going to be, be experienced through their emotions. Or some people, it's like, emotions, no way. Not even close to that. And both of those are already having a relationship a value established. And um, that it's a hierarchy of what's important and what's not. And mindfulness practice doesn't really have a hierarchy. It just is open awareness that it gets willing to see everything as it is. A clear window doesn't have judgment about what's near the side of the window. Many things will come through the past the window. So the mindfulness practice, we, we don't want to kind of excessively focus on emotions or you know, insufficiently focus on them. We want to focus on them as it's appropriate. So before we do a meditation, um, there's a famous um, simile that the Buddha gave, called the simile of the arrows. And it has to do with the. The Buddha was talking to a gathering of people, and he said to, he asked him a question. He said if um, a man is struck by an arrow, would that hurt the man?" And um, the assembly said, yeah, you know that would hurt to have and, um, and then the Buddha said, well, if the, the person struck by a second arrow, same person struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? And the people said, yeah, I mean, one, one's bad, but the second one makes it even worse. And so the Buddha said, uh, in life, Life sometimes brings you the first arrow. The second arrow is what you shoot at yourself. Basically, that's what he said. So, if I'm walking down the street here and I stub my toe on the sidewalk, that's the first arrow. You know that things like that happen. You know my my toe hurts. The second arrow would be me telling myself, "Gil, you are the worst walker. (laughs) You're an embarrassment to humankind." And, uh, you know, maybe you should only walk in places where people can't see you. You know, so I've added, you know, and then I see, oh, you know, I'm having all this negative judgments about myself. You know, I'm a Buddhist teacher. I shouldn't do that. And I'm really embarrassed. Now, suddenly I'm embarrassed. Oh, no. And then I'm suffering because I shouldn't be doing this. And that's a third arrow. And then I get angry with myself. I'm, here I am embarrassed one more time. I, sh- I should know better than that. And that's the fourth arrow. And so the arrows go on and on and on. And, um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, it's very important to distinguish between kind of what life, what belongs to life, just comes from being a human being, and what are those second uh, reactions that we have to it that adds to the suffering. This is a really important part of Buddhist uh, of mindfulness practice. So, um, so you, 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 maybe, you, maybe you come here today with a headache or a back ba- backache. Those things happen. The Buddha had a bad back. You wouldn't believe it with his good posture.
1: <laughs> but
0: um, he had a bad back, and sometimes uh, he couldn't uh, give his dharma talk, and he laid down instead, and had one of his senior disciples give the talk. It's kind of nice. I like it.
1: <laughs> you know.
0: And um, so you know, these things happen. And then uh, one of the things we want to be very careful for is to distinguish. Like we, just, last week, we talked about distinguishing the commentary from the experience. We want to also distinguish. The reaction we have to the primary situation. You know, are, is, are we adding a second arrow? Are we, are we attacking it, criticizing it, running away? How are we reacting to it? So, you know, that's different than just letting it be there in simplicity. And so part of the emotional life, part of, so some emotions belong to those second arrows. You know, anger sometimes is, a, is, is really a second arrow, like anger towards yourself um so the variety of emotions that belong to this world of second arrows and and uh again we we don't want <clears throat> in mindfulness practice we don't judge ourselves negatively we're having second or third or fourth arrows we try to wake up we try to pay attention notice this is what's going on and it doesn't matter if you finally can wake up uh at the 130th arrow it just matters that you wake up Waking up meaning you just notice it, you're aware of it, and you don't add anything more. You're like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. Because if you get to the 130th arrow and you say, this is terrible, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, then you've added 131st. Mm-hmm. So to add, you know, just some, sooner or later, you either have to forget what you're doing, be distracted, or you have to just somehow um, you know, wake up and just say, okay, enough. I just kind of step back and take the bigger picture here. Am I making some sense? Okay, so let's do a meditation. So um, take an alert, comfortable posture, gently close your eyes. And then before doing anything else, take a few moments here to notice how you are, how you're feeling, what's your emotional state, your mood. You say there's always a mood or emotional state present, a mental state present, even if you don't recognize it. So how are you? how are you about how you are? How are you relating to that? with your judgments, ideas, thoughts, reactions, if any? And if you do recognize how you're feeling Reflect a little bit about how, how the state of your feeling, emotional state, how it might influence how you relate, interpret, react to this period of meditation. If you're sitting here and you're grumpy, then are you likely to kind of interpret things in aversive ways as we go through here? If you're discouraged, are you likely to kind of have a little, carry a little burden of, of kind of being discouraged or kind of feel hopeless as you go about this? Is there some way in which your mood or emotional state could have an effect on this experience as we go forward? then take a few long, slow, deep breaths. It's a way of beginning here. So as you breathe in deeply, stretch, expand your ribcage, front and back, your shoulders. Feel the stretch like a massage. And then a slow, long exhale where you relax and let go. taking a deep breath in and and relax as you exhale. And then let your breathing return to normal and scan through your body See if there's any obvious places where you can soften the muscles, the holding that you might have. It might be possible to soften the muscles of the forehead, around the eyes and the jaws, cheeks. Especially as you exhale, maybe you can soften a softening wave through your head. for your shoulders, shoulder blades. Perhaps you can soften the muscles of your chest, ribcage area. Letting go of any holding, pressure. Also, it can be helpful when you meditate to let your belly, your stomach be soft. Let hang forward. Perhaps you can feel the weight of your belly and let gravity gently let it settle. Then within your body, as part of your bodily experience, become aware of how your body experiences breathing. See if you can compose yourself, compose your attention, your presence around the experience of breathing, around the place in your body where you feel the breathing easiest or most pronounced. Settle around that area, compose yourself around it. And then begin to hang in there, hang out with the rhythm Breathing in and breathing out. The expansion and contraction. your mind wanders away in thought. Relax, relax the thinking mind and begin again with your breathing. Let go of what you're thinking about. And if you could stay with your breathing and thoughts are in the background, just let them be there, quietly in the background. You don't have to take care of them or attend to them, pick them up. In the foreground you can stay with your breath. Stay with the breath. Breathing in and breathing out. And notice when you shift from a simple awareness to what's happening, to getting involved in commentary, or getting involved in reactions. And if you can tease that apart, then return back to the simplicity of your breathing. If you find yourself reacting to what's going on, it might be helpful to very calmly, quietly, whisper in the mind, name the reaction. Maybe reacting, reacting, or some other name. Maybe it helps kind of free yourself a little bit from being caught in it. And then after that few moments of recognition, Come back again to your breathing. Trust trusting that for now it's enough just to be aware of breathing. So then now, let go of the focus on your breathing. And instead, again, notice what is the emotional state that you have, the mood, the mental state, or if there's a kind of reactive state that's present. Very simply, see if you can recognize that reactive state. for a kind of very simple awareness, like you're gonna hang there with awareness, feeling what's happening, what you're feeling. See if you can find out where in your body that emotional or mental or state or mood is most manifested, most expressed. What sensations, what feelings in your body that you know that you're having this emotional state. could be you're calm or agitated. could be that you're impatient or content, could be you're peaceful, agitated, could be you're happy or sad, irritated, delighted, confused, eager, See if you can notice how the emotional state is expressed through your body, through sensations in your body. If your mood or emotional state changes, goes away, notice what replaces it. And as you do this, you can also very, very quietly label it, name it, letting the naming of it help you be simple with it, independent of it, but still feeling it. So then, the last minute of the sitting, come back again to your breathing, and hang, hang out with your breathing, as if it's the most important place to be. Every everything else can recede to the background. say a few more words about the actual instructions for mindfulness. Um, generally encourage people to put the breathing at the center of the meditation and uh, with some encouragement to stay there because uh, focusing on the breath can help stabilize the mind, can help concentrate the mind, can help you know calm things down, strengthen the mindfulness. There's a lot of benefits with uh, staying with the breathing. But if something else becomes more pronounced, more predominant, more compelling than the breath. Then the instruction is to let go of the breathing and take your meditative awareness, take your awareness and shift it to this other thing that's happening. And, and kind of basically meditate with that, bring your awareness to that. Just cultivate your mindfulness, your present moment awareness on that experience. So if it's uh, something in your body, some strong sensations in your body, then rather than thinking of the, of the sensations as a distraction, we take them as just something new to develop our meditation on. So, if it's a, for new meditators, it's often if, uh, exp- uh, they have to deal with discomfort. So, within reason, you know, we we simply move our attention to the discomfort and we hold it in awareness. We explore it with awareness, trying to be really simple, not getting caught up in the reactions we have, might have aversions we might have to it, or fears we might have to it, and just be present for it. If there's uh, compelling or loud sounds, again we don't treat it as distractions. we just okay now I'll do listening meditation when I go with the breath in a calm way, just open up and take in the sounds as long as they're there. And the sounds are how always sounds always always happen in the present moment, you're in the present moment when you're with a sound and do mindfulness of sound. be present for that experience that fully. So the same thing with emotions. if emotions become pronounced, compelling, predominant. <coughs> Then they become the meditation subject. So again, you can let go of your breath, and you take in the experience, the emotion, and um, and uh, now it's a little bit tricky with emotions because some people get very easily entangled with their emotions. They um, get involved with them, or they resist them, or they judge them, or do something with them. And, uh, and the trick is just simply have this very simple. The trick is to have this very simple awareness that simply knows is present for, and present for the experience of the emotion as it is, as it's, as it's going through us. And um, So there's a number of steps uh, or, or aspects, I would say, to um, mindfulness of emotions. And the first one is the, is the recognition that now an emotion has become compelling. Now an emotion has become predominant. Now there's an emotion that needs our attention. And sometimes that's not so easy for some people because... Uh, some people um, are a little bit disconnected to their emotions. And so there could be actually be an you know, emotion which is really a, a really important event. It's really having a big influence and effect on us. However, we kind of dismiss it or don't really think it's important. We think other things are more important, like our thoughts or our stories. And so we kind of like, uh, it could be a dismissal of them or not paying attention to them and not valuing them. So part of mindfulness is to learn to recognize when an emotion uh, is present that needs attention. And to um, so the recognition, oh, here it is. Now, sometimes it hits us over the head, the emotion. It's really clear. Um, so the recognition part is pretty straightforward. So just to recognize you're having some kind of emotional experience, a mood or something. The second aspect, I like to call it acceptance or allowance. And this is uh, uh, not being in any kind of conflict with the emotional experience you're having. So, allowing it to be there in its freedom. Allowing it to be there as it is. And I like to say meditation practice is a safe place to have your full range of emotions. And you're welcome when you meditate to have murderous rage. Now, I don't know if it's, you know, such a good idea in other aspect, areas of your life. And you might have to be wise about murderous rage, you know, elsewhere. How much you show it, you know. If you have murderous rage towards your boss, you know, maybe it's not so wise to let it you know, just let it be there. But meditation is this beautiful place where you can, you know, you're safe, you you're committed to not moving. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, you can just let it course through you and really be there, you know, as, as it needs to be. You
1: wouldn't see that as a second arrow.
0: What? A, a rage like that. Oh, is, is, a, is a murderous rage a second arrow? It's possible it's a, you know, 130th arrow. But uh, the, uh, but the point is that if if it's there, then if you, if you think oh that's a second arrow and shouldn't be there, that you've added a third arrow. <laughs> 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 and so once it's there, in meditation we give us permission. Okay, let it be there. So I call it sometimes sometimes it's called acceptance, allowance, non conflict, permission to be there. And um, and for some people that's a huge. Uh, um, you know uh, tr- uh, training to train oneself or to, or to develop oneself so that one can be present for an emotion state with while giving it permission to be there. And um, permission to, for it to be there does not also not say certainly not the same thing as resistance to it or judging it or being conflict with it, but uh, giving permission to be there is also not the same thing as giving into it. So, you know so, Oh, I've heard that you know, I meditate. I can, you know, I can love murderous rage. So you just okay, I'm really going to, you know, let it pump it up and really kind of let it flow and really get into it because it feels so good. Yes, you know, that's that's kind of getting entangled with it. That's not simplicity simplicity of awareness either. So the idea is not to add on it, not to fuel it, not to get engaged in it, but also not to repress it. So, uh, the and mindfulness meditation offers this wonderful, in a kind of middle way, this wonderful third alternative of, uh, to repression on one side and expression on the other. So, if you're expressing it, then you've gotten involved. If you're repressing it, then you're entangled. But what we're we trying to do with it in sitting still, in mindfulness, is just let it be there, neither repressed nor expressed. Make sense? Now some people, that's a strange idea because it seems like expression is what it is. But anyway, so 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 these just sit there. So this so first is to recognize it's there. And the second is to um, allow it, accept it. It's you know and that's a, it takes a while to learn that. Don't feel like you can do that overnight. Depending on you know, those are various and different emotions. You know how you can well, you can do that. And then the third is to um, um, name it. This mental, this mental noting that uh, often is done in our tradition, you use a very simple label. And you know, in the ancient uh, folk tales, if you name the dragon, the dragon loses its power. Or in, in some traditional cultures, uh, you're given a birth name, but you shouldn't tell your birth name to anybody because then they have a certain kind of power over you. There's power in naming. And, uh, and, the, and so there's something about naming our experience, which um, you know, sometimes takes the power away from the experience and the power that comes from being identified with it, being entangled with it, being reactive to it, or feeding it or something. And so, very simply, in a kind of a simple, calm, kind of as calm as you can in your mind, just name it anger, anger, anger is there, anger, anger. Oh, or happy, 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 or sad, sad, sad. And the idea is with, with that naming of it, you're trying to kind of name it from a place in your being where you're not caught by it. You know, it's lost in it, being swept up in it, whatever it might be. So if you do the mental noting, and you say, when you're happy, you say, Oh, happy. <laughs> you, you're in it. <laughs> you know, just, just say happy, happy, happy. And if you're you know, angry, and you go, anger, you're in it. Just anger. It's kind of just so that part of you that doesn't it, it, that, so you're trying to find that place in you that's not entangled or caught in the experience not by repressing it or pushing it away but just finding that adult adult- like place that can just kind of be present in a stable way also the mental noting has a function of being a gentle encouragement to you a nudge stay present so when there's emotions you know emotions don't disappear that quickly usually so so if some emotion stays for a while, just kind of ongoing, kind of steady way, just name it, name it, you know. Happy or angry, 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 angry. And it's also a little bit encouragement. You know, stay there, stay there, because the mind has such a strong tendency to wander off. So stay there, stay there. And one of the strong places it wonders, can wander off in, when there's emotions, it can wander off into the story. Some emotions are strongly connected to stories. In fact, you know, I could be sitting, meditating, minding my own business, and there is a, you know, a sound of a car drives by. And, you know, I'm feeling really peaceful. I hear the sound of the car, and it reminds me of the kind of car that rear ended me 32 years ago. And then the, the, the anger wells up. You know, and their anger wells up partly because of this I'm remembering the story, you know, that person in that car, and how could they drive that kind of car, why did they drive that kind of way? And I should have given them peace of my mind, And, and pretty soon I'm kind of like in this world. I'll tell you a story of a, uh, when I taught a retreat many years ago. as um, you know, you know, so I teach retreats and you know, week-long 10-day meditation retreats, and there was a woman who had been coming to meditation retreats uh, for a long time. But she was a very troubled woman, emotionally troubled. And uh, she'd been struggling with her emotions for a long time and, and um, kind of tortured by them in many ways. And, um, and one morning, we had a magical sitting, it seemed like. Uh, we were all, all meditating together, teachers and the and the, stu- and the retreatants. And the, it was early morning, but not early, it was like you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. And there was a beautiful winter light coming through. It was very still and peaceful and very clear. And you kind of feel the whole room got so still, so cl- not just still but clear and peaceful. And bell rang to end the sitting, and like no one wanted to get up. It was just like felt so good. And um, but it happened to be that her and I had an interview right after that sitting, so we both found our way up to the interview room, and I sat in my chair and she came in to her sat in her chair, and uh, it was really clear. That she, to me, that she was in an altered state, or an altered, but she was really peaceful. I'd never seen her that way. She was peaceful. She was content. She was there, very simple way. It didn't feel like we had to say anything. I felt the same way. It didn't seem like we had to say anything. We just sat there a little bit, looked at each other, and you know, it's like, great. What do you say when you're at peace? And um, and then uh, we said a few words, and then she said to me, "Yeah, this is nice, but it wasn't this way yesterday." Yesterday, uh, this, and then as she started telling me yesterday, her features and her form and her emotions all got kind of completely wrapped up and she was like, and I said, I said, oh no, I mean, why did she have to start telling me the story of yesterday? Why couldn't she just stay with what was here? So it was an example of how story making can really kind of entangle us in this whole world of emotions. And so what we try to do when we do mindfulness of emotions, we try not to live in the stories stories about emotional stories, stories connected to emotions, are usually not real-time stories, not here and now kind of stories about what's happening now. They're usually stories about what happened before, what might happen in the future. And so, they're a little bit, you know, a virtual reality. And so, the um, the idea in mindfulness meditation is not get, not get sucked into the story. And uh, that's hard for some people because they spend a lifetime in the stories. And... Um, so the idea So come back. And so by, na- by naming the experience, you know we're more like, "Stay here, stay here, stay here. Don't go into the story. Stay here. Don't go into the story. Anger, anger. Oh that person. anger, come back, be here. That's a story. That's a story. That's the commentary. Come back and just be with this. be with the immediacy of what's actually here, with the anger. Be with the emotion of anger. Don't be with the story that's, that's fueling it or connecting to it that feeds off it or is feeding it. So, the recognition, the acceptance, the naming, and then the last thing I call I call investigation. And that is, once you have the ability to accept it, to recognize it, accept it, and to start naming it, to be present for it, then be curious about it. Look into it. What is this experience? Don't just hold it at a distance say, I'm present, I'm present. Get closer. You can find out what is this. What is it? How is anger really experienced? How do you really experience it in your body? How do you experience it in your stomach? How do you experience it in your jaws? How do you experience it temperature-wise? What's actually being experienced when you're angry? What's the energy like in your system? Um, kind of, kind of begin to explore it, and that exploration is is explore, exploring, investigating, is a movement of the mind which is adult-like, which is independent, which is not kind of coward or not reactive to the experience, but just kind of, what is this experience? Very simple. What is this? And one of the primary things, that one of the things that's very helpful with emotions is to explore, investigate how it is experienced in your body. What's the physical manifestation of it? And virtually every emotion you're going to have is not only going to be expressed in your body, but kind of almost like is your body. It's like, you wouldn't know what emotion you're having unless there were some kind of emotion, some kind of sensations in your body corresponded with it. So, you know, you know, some people, if they're afraid, their stomach will get tight, so that tightness will be there, or their shoulders get lifted up. Or um, if you're happy, you feel the softening that goes on, there's warmth, or this tingling. Um, if you're sad, you can feel the heaviness and the weight and the droopiness. So there's something, there's shifts and changes that happen in your body. So uh, bring your attention closer to that physical side of the emotion. Feel the physical side of it. That's one way of avoiding getting caught up in the stories because the body is not a story. And then you're, But you're still connecting to the emotion. You're present for it. You're present for how it is in the body. And also, the body, in a sense, has a wisdom of its own. <clears throat> it's kind of like um, some emotions are Fueled by the story-making mind, when they're experienced or manifested in the body, the body has a has a the body is wants to go to homeostasis. Body wants to go to healing. Wants to come back to peace. So when I teach mindfulness of emotion to kids, um, I little kids like seven, eight-year-old kids or something, I I have them act out an emotion for me. So I said, okay, now everybody kind of show me how you're angry. That's really cute. A oh, you know, room full you of know, seven, eight-year-olds trying to show them they're angry, how angry they are. And then, uh, and then I said, okay, now everyone freeze. <clears throat> and they're all freeze, freezing in different positions, right? And then I say, okay, now to stop being angry, what do you need to do with your body? And then they kind of all relax their bodies. So it's a way of teaching them how to pay attention to the emotions and to show the connection to their body and how their body can be an aid to having some mastery over their emotion, not be caught by it. And they love it. They've done it. They had so much fun. Um, so to drop into the body and feel it in the body. So the body wants to go. It doesn't want to stay up tense. The body wants to relax. And to those emotions which involve tension, there's a movement that the body wants. To, if the body's left alone, the body will Relax. The body doesn't relax because the mind keeps reasserting its tension, its clinging, its resistance. So if you can drop down into the body and feel the emotion as a physical experience, you're kind of getting out of the way. You're not you know, just the body. And the body has a chance to open up and allow the emotion to course through, to move, to evolve, and to resolve and dissolve. So in that line, uh, I'm fond of the fact that the, uh, the word emotion in English comes from the Latin word motion. Isn't that nice? Movement. And the E part, the, the uh, prefix means out. So move out. So all emotions are processes. And they're processes and they want to move out. They want to move unless they're frozen. So um, resentment is frozen anger. And, um, you know, to kind of misquote Charlie Brown, bad grief is frozen grief. You know, grief is grief. Everyone experiences that sooner or later, but then there's grief which can be frozen. So uh, there's certain emotions get frozen and then the process, the evolution, the movement doesn't happen. But left alone, all, all emotions would moved through. That's one of the reasons why sometimes with certain emotions we say, well, I just have to give this time. Because with time, things will sometimes settle and you know, to some degree take care of themselves. So um, if we can experience the emotions as an embodied experience, as they occur in, their, in our body, the emotional life has an easier time to move through us, to change and shift. And it shifts in different ways. Sometimes it resolves and quiets down. Sometimes it gets stronger before it uh, gets freer. So sometimes you feel a little bit of irritation and you, you could be present for that. And that irritation, because you're present for it, kind of explodes like this big volcano of resentment you know, of, you know, of, you know, huge fury. And fury was buried deep inside and finally has a chance to come out. So it's not like a linear process. But as soon as you're mindful, it goes from like, you know, worse to better. You know, it's, you know, there's this wisdom or this kind of movement of inner life that we trust in mindfulness, just trust it. And as long as you're mindful, it can go in all kinds of different directions. And we consider that to be part of the healing or part of the resolution or the movement it has to take. And just stay present, stay present, stay present, and watch it go through its shifts and changes. So in that last meditation, I asked you at the beginning and at the end to notice your emotions, your emotional state, your mood. So what was that like for some of you? What happened to you? What did you notice when you actually brought your attention to that part of your experience? when um uh, I'm sitting here it's it's always generally pleasant it's when I go out there that things arise so so I always have a very nice a connotation with sitting and I
1: see and um, but what I've noticed uh,
0: uh with meditation would help going out there is that uh what you uh, described last time or the time before, where you get more space, there's less um, reactivity to whatever might come up. So I'm usually not as calm or whatever out there, but have a little bit better uh, handle on what arises and what's coming up, and can see it a little bit better. Great, thank you. So somebody else, a little bit about what happened when you focused on your emotions in the last sitting. Anybody want to say a few things? So if you can use the mic, and some people who can't hear unless they use the hearing system.
1: I was tend to share, so maybe I should just hold this. <laughs> um, when you asked us at the very beginning to identify our emotion, I actually came in tonight feeling very low. And I tried to find it, like you said, in where where it might lie. Um, and which I found it up in sort of the front part of my forehead. But then and I identified it, you know, put a label on it like, oh, there it is but Then I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I tried not to change it. I tried not to focus in on it too much. I just sort of let it be there. But it, it's still there.
0: <laughs> OK, so um, it's, a, it's a good question. And uh, one of the things one place to start with investigating that question is do uh, you have some expectation of what's supposed to happen? Like it's supposed to go away.
1: <laughs>
0: so that's commentary. That's extra. So it's very important to recognize that that's operating because things like that can operate very subtly in the, va- in the background and have a big influence on your experience. But if it's not acknowledged, you know, it can actually be a kind of an irritant for the whole system. So recognize- and if you if acknowledge it, maybe you can drop it and once you drop the expectation that it's supposed to go away, then maybe it's less of a problem. So that's one thing. The other is, um, uh, it's not, it's not uh, a meditator's job to be concerned about how long something stays. A meditator's job is simply to use whatever's happening as the vehicle, as the means for developing greater mindfulness, staying present. So we often come with ideas that oh, shouldn't be there, to fix things, something's supposed to happen. Uh, in mindfulness meditation, we actually try to free ourselves from the idea that something is supposed to happen. We're just trying to use whatever is happening as a way of developing stronger mindfulness. And so if you're feeling low, so okay, it's, you know, it's kind of a drag. <laughs> but I guess this is the task today, is to, to cultivate mindfulness of the low, that low feeling. And so, you, so, so first of all, you can look, are you, are you really recognizing me accurately? Are you accepting it? Is there a sense of allowing there? Are you not in conflict with it? Um, then name it gently, stay with it, just stay with it. And then you can start investigating it more. In investigation, you, know, you can go and feel the different sensations more carefully in your, your head. You can look more closely. You could look uh, from below and top and explore it different ways, feel your way into it. Is it just in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in your skin or does it feel like it's deep in your, in your, in your skull? Um, if you bring yourself really close to it, to the awareness, really close, um, what does it look like? What does it feel like? You know, does it feel like a solid thing, or is it made up of, uh, of a, a pattern of different sensations that are rising and passing? Um, you, know, you, know, what's, you know, you get close. What happens to it? And generally, when you get close enough to some uh, physical experience, um, it begins shifting and changing, and then you stay with the shifts and changes. Does that, does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. I think um, I think one of the hardest expectations that I'm dealing with, um, even I did your exercises on the pink sheet of eating very slowly and 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 just being with yourself as you eat. My God, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. <laughs> um, next to childbirth, um, but it was. Uh, I do have an expectation that at the end of my meditation that I will be. At peace, or or more peaceful, and that's a very hard expectation to let go of.
0: Yes, and it's 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 it's, uh, it's to be expected that people have that expectation because that's, we often kind of advertise meditation as being you know peace and calm making and all that, and, and that's what people want it. But um, and, and you know it's nice when it happens. It's good that it happens. Ultimately, we want that to happen. But if it happens too quickly, sometimes or we expect it, we we mess up the whole. Uh, you know, deeper process, deeper process, deeper psychological, spiritual process that we need to go through. So, for example, I've known people who have gone through, had very difficult meditation sessions. Maybe, like, a, sometimes a whole retreat. And sometimes they, pick, pick, they end up meditation session, well, that was a waste of time. You know, I, I, should, I, I should have just gone for a walk or, you know, watched television or something, but that was just a boy. And, um, and then they come back, you know, and say, and then they come back sometime later and say, you know something? That meditation practice, that session, that retreat was so hard for me. But what I learned was I learned how to stay present in difficult situations. Because it was really difficult for me to stay present. I learned how to be present. And so I didn't know at the time how useful it was. But later, I was in the hospital with my so-and-so. and It was an like awful, confusing time. Everyone was angry with each other. And... Because I learned to do it, because I had hung in there with that difficult meditation, I learned something about hanging in there in difficult situations where I had to hang in there. And normally I would have made a mess of it. So sometimes what we think of as a bad meditation, an agitated, uncalm, upset, painful meditation, sometimes it's actually better than a calm one. So that's, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that in the intro class, but <laughs> but it's the case.
1: Well, I had, can you hear me? Anxiety. So I thought, that's inappropriate. I'm so anxious, but meditating doesn't. So I thought it was inappropriate to be so anxious and meditating. So I tried breathing and thinking, okay, the anxiety will go away. And then once I was breathing all right, I was so anxious. So you said, okay, just go with that so I had a wave of anxiety but I thought, okay I'll just breathe that's all right and uh, it was very interesting it was just what you described so a big wave came and I had to think about that and when it got really scary I was breathing so I learned to separate from that and at least keep breathing
0: beautiful oh, it can give you a lot of power in your life to have that ability <clears throat> there's a practice that I teach people sometimes uh, which uh, uh, I, I kind of labeled riding out an emotion, or riding out the desire. So, um, and so you want to wait until you like, so this is good for people who have addiction issues. Like, if you have a really big addiction, it could be anything. And uh, wait when you have a really juicy one, like a really strong, juicy desire, like, you know, like you really got to have that, whatever it is. And so when, you, when that time comes, um, go sit down in the chair. Sit down. And and uh, don't give into it. Write it out, and uh, and sit there, and you know, and, and all the lawyers of the mind come out, and will explain why you have to kind of you know you can't sit there. Why you have to do something, and go to do it, and and you quiet the lawyers, and then and then uh, the publicities come out, and the commercials come out, and the you know, and all this tremendous surge of energy, you feel like you're gonna die if it's not gonna happen. You know, it's like tremendous compulsions can be really powerful with addictions. And, you know. And, uh, but you're committed to not, you know, it's like being at the rodeo, you know, you're just like, you're not going to leave, you know, you're not going to fall off your horse. And, um, and sooner or later, it's guaranteed, uh, the wave is going to crest. And then you'll find yourself on the other side. And you'll get calm eventually, quiet down eventually. And the people I've known who then have hung out, they hung in there for a really good one, good wave, and watch it come to the other side have felt so empowered in your life. Wow! I can be stronger than my addiction. I can be stronger than these very powerful emotions. I, can, I learn how to be present for it, to breathe through it, to be present. So you had one here earlier, right? you still want to...
1: Actually, mine was very similar to the um, first one. I, I came in um, feeling irritated, and then when I gave my irritation some attention or that, then I felt quite sorry for myself. And then I felt sad, you know? So, And, and, and I was annoyed because I usually feel better when I'm meditating. So, um, yeah, it was, yes. and, and, and it's, I didn't know as well when you said um, labeled reaction, no. if we were to say labeled reaction or to kind of actually name what reaction it was.
0: Yeah, you can could, you could, either one. You can name reaction, reaction. The idea with it, the labeling can be very helpful, but it's not helpful. If you spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the right name is, what the right label is. <laughs> <laughs> Try this and that, and you know, you know, you know. So just, just you know. So if you, if it's not obvious, you know, it's, you know, then um, then just say reaction. You know, or, or if you're not obvious what emotion you're having, cause sometimes it's not obvious. But you know, sometimes emotions happen, you say, Emotion, emotion. So I remember once I was um, feeling off. And I didn't quite know what was going on, but I certainly felt off. So I went and lay down. And then I just, because I, you know, this practice I know how to do, I then kind of went into my body to feel what was going on in my body, on this offness. I didn't know what it was. And I could feel that I couldn't exhale all the way, and that somehow my, when I, I, my chest was extended. It's so like I was—I breathed in fully, but then I couldn't breathe out all the way. So I held out. So I started feeling that for a while, and then as I felt that for a while, um, somehow it became clear in my mind, or it popped into my mind, that I was depressed. So I said, "I'm oh, depressed." And as soon as I named the depression, the chest relaxed. So, so, but it, you know, at first I just started off off, I'm off. You know, I just was content with that, and then at some point the clarity came, but it came on its own. It wasn't like I was guessing or analyzing. Keep it really simple. Somebody else want to share? Maybe one more here. Keep
1: so I woke up this morning and I felt something and I labeled it fear. Um, told myself where it was in my body, wrote about it at work, um, and then I thought about the fourth step of investigation. I came here, we meditated. You said pick an emotion and I was trying to reach for that one in the morning but I had no emotion to pick and I thought that that was very interesting because I'm like well wow but then I got stuck on investigation I'm like okay so now that I've done those three steps sh- shouldn't something be happening shouldn't I be t- asking for your shouldn't I be you know doing more investigation of those m- body symptoms and I just didn't know what to do after that and I guess I wasn't supposed to do anything right.
0: yeah, nothing has to happen in this practice you know, the, the idea that something's supposed to happen is just, a, just another commentary, another judgment, an idea. Nothing's supposed, nothing has to happen. If something happens, that's okay. But uh, but uh, don't burden yourself if something has to happen. Just be present, okay? Nothing's happening. Pre- being present when nothing's happening. Now I'm bored. Now something <laughs> something's happening. <laughs> now I get now I get to do boredom meditation, and even recognize you know okay I've been told that I have to take boredom as my subject. So I am ha- I'll guess I'll just write my PhD on boredom. I really get to know it well. You enter into boredom. You really feel that. And, uh, but they had nothing, You know, free yourself from some ideas that something is supposed to happen. And, um, but, you know, but on the other hand, there's always some in- mood that's going on. But um, the, um, it might not be something you recognize very well. It might not you be familiar with. And that might be very vague. Or something. it might be something you don't think of as a mood or emotional state. Um, there was one woman on retreat who um, came to an interview to a teacher and said, You know, I'm feeling something really strange. I don't quite know what it is, but so the teacher said something like, Oh, well, just keep investigating, just keep being present. And then she, came, she came back the next interview a few days later and said, I discovered what it, what it, what it was or what it is. Um, I'm calm. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd never been calm in my life before, and so I, I didn't I couldn't recognize it. <laughs> yes, This just like a
1: stupid question, but I have to ask it Is, um, Well, I wasn't feeling an emotion, but I was feeling sleepy. So at some point when you said, you know, see if you have an emotion and then feel it, I just said, I'm sleepy.
0: That's good. And
1: stayed with that.
0: Yeah, being sleepy is maybe not an emotion, but uh, being, but 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 uh, but uh, you know but, uh, maybe it's the same thing, but being tired or being uh, having sloth and torpor, you know that's kind of a state you're in. You feel a sloth and torpor state, so you can kind of go into the state and feel that and explore that. So uh, the the you know emotion, mood, mental state, it's kind of a very wide field. And this is very interesting because uh, you know the word emotion is really big here in the West in English. Speakers, you know, we have like, like people, you know, like, like I said, they'll fight over their opinions about what to do with emotions, and, and uh, there's no easy word in Buddhist languages for the English word emotion. If you, you know, you can't easily translate. You can kind of do it, but it's it's kind of hard. So, what does that mean? The emotion, Buddhists don't have emotions. Uh, they um, emotion. It's kind of like there's a the, human, the, the, the the pie of human experience can be divided up different ways. And the English language divides it up a particular way and has this pie section called emotions. But it's a very—it's it's kind of a—it's kind of a generalization. It's kind of a general category term. It's very vague and general what emotion is. And um, so, so you know, so you know, so you know, you know, so mood, emotional state, emotional state, um, um, and you know, it's, it's interesting to explore what makes up an emotion. Emotions uh, often are made up of uh, physical sensations. Sometimes they're made up of uh, motivation, desires, something we want. Sometimes they're made up of stories we tell each other. Sometimes they're made up of um, feel, you know, um, feelings of being pleasant or unpleasant. It's kind of made up. Of, they're, they're kind of composite anyway. So because you know, they're not a unitary thing, singular thing, so you Can be can explore, you know, the different aspects of them. Now, one of the things about emotions or emotional states or mental states is that Buddhism distinguishes between emotions or emotional states, uh, moods, mental states, which are born out of reactions and reactivity or are born in relationship to things in the world versus emotions which arise when actually the system, the inner system, the heart, the mind, the body, is open, channels free, and present and stable, but doesn't have uh, is not reacting or responding to anything. So, so many emotions are have to do with things happening, and you know, have to do with our relationships with things around us. So, for example, if I win the lottery. Then, uh, if I follow the usual pattern, apparently that scholars have read people, you know, studied people who win lotteries. If I follow the usual pattern, then um, I'll be really happy at first, and then after a year year later, I feel pretty miserable. (laughs) And so the happiness and the misery has to do a lot with, you know, the things in the world, my relationship with things in the world. Or when I was uh, so when I was 13, it was 1967. Those of you who are old enough to remember. That wonderful time, and um, and I was living in a little town in Italy, and um, I'd, been, I'd come from California, and so that summer I was living in Italy, and so I was I had, I had the longest hair of any guy in that little town, and I was the only one with blue jeans, and having long hair back then, you know, was a big deal. So um, for guys, and um, and so I was really cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Glad you appreciate that. <laughs> and um, and so I went around town with a certain kind of good feeling for myself. I felt like up and you know nice and you know good. It's great. And um, and then in the summer I came back to Los Angeles, and a lot had happened in California in the summer of 1967. And I no longer had the longest hair of the guys. <laughs> and I went to school. I was going to pull pulling my hair trying to get longer because I was so uncool. And they had figured out to somehow you know, put their jeans through washing machines 50 times. And some people actually put their jeans out in the road and cars would drive over them and people would cut them up and patch them up. And you know, and I just had blue jeans. And so I was no longer cool. And so my, I felt kind of deflated and kind of embarrassed and I was pulling my hair to make it grow faster. And, you know, it was like, like, and so you know, the only thing that happened was I'd crossed the Atlantic. You know, and, and my energy level, my mood and everything. And that's an example of how my mood, my emotional state, was existed in relationship to some other people. Okay, so we have all these experiences in life. People like us, we don't like they don't like us. We have success in life, we have failure in life. We get what we want, we don't get what we want. Um, you know, there's all these things that happen. Uh, we get sick, we get healthy, and so all these things can affect our mood and our emotional state. And to some degree, to some degree, that's normal and healthy. To some degree, it's Okay, it can be very unhealthy to be completely cut up in the world of how we, how always be in a relationship, always have our emotional state, our well-being always tied to some to, to to always tied or relating to the experiences of the world, to how things are in the world. Because then you're just kind of like a slave. You're always going to be pushed around by the winds of the world. So that's one, one kind of emotion that arises, emotions that arise because of our relationship with the world. And there's a whole other category of emotional state or mental states, which have much more to do with not being in relationship. We're not, we're not caught in the relationship. We're independent. We're free. We're liberated from the, all that reaction for and against and everything goes on. And um, and the system just open and flowing. And there's a tremendous amount of... Um, what can be called unrelated, maybe unrelated <laughs> joy, unrelated happiness, unrelated peace. So peace, joy, happiness, it bubbles up, not because anything in the world is going right or wrong. It just kind of lay in the system, it flows up. It doesn't have a reason or a cause or a condition or a catalyst for it in how things are going in the world. And that's a phenomenal thing uh, to discover a happiness and well-being that's not dependent on how things are going. And part of the the possibility as we do this practice and learn how to kind of just be present for things as they are and free yourself from the commentary and the reactions just be present is in time you'll discover this tremendous treasure Uh, and it's a source of tremendous uh, power also in your life of happiness and well-being that doesn't require you to win the lottery or to have people like you or think well of you or this or or that. And... um, And so there's there's two different realms, and uh, and generally the shift over time for people who do meditation practice is they start shifting to having more and more of the unrelated, you know, emotions away from the related ones or the you know reactive ones or something. So, um, um, but the key to doing that and making that shift, or the the personal growth that happens through meditation uh, has a lot to do with the very simple thing, just stay present in a very simple way and, uh, and be present for what is. Don't be present for what you want to happen. Just be present for what is happening and try to be as simple as you can with that. Try not to have an agenda, try not to have commentary. If you do have agendas, if you have commentaries, all you're asked to do then is to know that that's there. Just know that's there. Know what's there. Know what's there. Know what's there. Keep it really simple. Stay in the knowing. Stay. this is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. This is happening now. As, and see if you can avoid adding a second arrow. And if you add a second arrow, just be very allowing of that. Okay, there's a second arrow. Wow. That, that's what a second arrow is like, as opposed to, shoot. <laughs> and then you have the third arrow. So, so it takes a while to get a hang of this. But I hope that you're getting a little bit of sense of how this practice is done. It's, it's meant to be very, very simple. And because it's so simple, some people, it takes a while to get a hang of it. Because we always think you have to do something, this and that. Make sense? So, um, so there is a handout for today. And, um, and so, you know... Explore it a little bit and practice uh, with this emotion. Uh, practice with emotions over the next. Um, wait a moment, please. All the rustling distracts me. We have. I still have three more minutes of your time. I shouldn't have said anything. So, um, so the um, um, it's, if over the next week, see if you can get into your emotional life in terms of being explore it, be interested in it, notice how it works, both in meditation but also outside. And um, also, you might do people watching, you know, look at other people and see if you can pick up their emotions and feel what's going on. Also, you might uh, uh, hang out with some people, colleagues, friends, neighbors, anybody, strangers, um, and engage them and ask them about their emotional life. Not so much, you know, what emotions you're having and your dark secrets of your life and all that, but more, a little bit more abstractly, um, how do you relate to emotions? What's your relationship to emotions? How do you work with emotions? How do you, what do you do with them? Maybe find someone you think, you think is wise, and ask them, how do you relate? What have you learned about, what, what, what wise things have you learned about the emotions? So kind of get into emotions this week. And, and part of the reason is that just the more you know about it, the easier it is to be free of it and to practice with it. But another reason is that the more you're familiar with the world of emotions, the easier it'll be to understand next week's instructions, mm-hmm. which is gonna be mindfulness of thinking. Because thinking has a very clo- very close con- very close connection to emotions, and it's easier to be free of your thinking if you know how to be free in relationship to your, your emotions. They're connected. So, so thank you very much, and um, so we'll see you next week.